If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. It's a great pleasure to welcome Martin Shaw to present his latest book, Stag Cult, beautifully published by Hazel Press. Yeah. Um, Martin, as I'm sure you will know, is a lithographer, a shamanic bricoleur. That's a good one. <laughs> He'll be in conversation with Claire Armitstead from The Guardian for about 45 minutes, after which there should be time for questions, after which there will certainly be time for the buying and signing books. And join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. I'd imagine this is this is quite a fan club, isn't it? Uh, um, have you all come here because be, you've been drawn by the power of, of Martin's storytelling, or have you come here out of curiosity? How many people are pre-existing fans? <laughs> yeah, well, we've got we've got to, we've got some people who've come out of curiosity over here. Good. You will be in for a, you will be in for a treat. I, I have to say, I didn't actually know. I have to say, I didn't know anything no. about Martin no. before I started reading this, and I was saying I. It is a sort of um, extraordinary book, and I have asked him to read a particular story, which sums up partly my experience of it, yeah. but also seems somehow essential to the book um, as an introduction. Um, and I was looking back through his previous book titles, which the list of previous book titles is like a, a sort of a folk story in itself, and I will give you a few of them. I mean, there is just a few of them. A Branch from the Lightning Tree, Ecstatic Myth and the Grace of Wildness. Snowy Tower, Parsifal and the Wet Black Branch of Language. Yeah. The Wet Black Branch of Language. Yeah. Um, scatterlings, Getting Claimed in the Age the age of Amnesia. And I've just discovered Smoke Hole, Looking for the Wild in, a t- in the Time mm. of the Spyglass, which I didn't know about, which is, yeah. which is downstairs, downstairs. And you yeah. wrote in, actually, during lockdown for I your did. daughter. Yes, I did. Yeah. And, and now we have um, Stag Cult in this beautiful little, beautiful little edition. Um, so... Just explain for the people who don't know about you. Yeah. What exactly are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I having spent a few days in London, I know I'm rural. I'm rural, uh, so I am. I'm this endangered species called a mythologist, and I do implore, if nothing else, you leave this evening with the notion that maybe you could be a mythologist too, because there aren't many of us left. And mythologist is simply someone that loves old stories, loves all the different layers of them, and believes most fervently that a story from 4,000 years ago can be telling us something about what happened on the way to the bus in the morning. They're kind of always... Myth really is not to do with a long time ago. Not really. Not at its deepest level. So I'm a mythologist. Uh, I'm something called a wilderness rites of passage guide. So I've been taking folks (laughs) way out into the bush for 25 years. Uh, I've had an academic life as a Stanford professor and running MAs in this country. Uh, And uh, devoted dad, you know. (laughs) 
Yeah. And so this this book is a it, it sort of illustrates what or everything you've said, um, and it but it's more personal than a lot of your other work. It is. It is. Yeah. There's, it's a new move. I think. I don't know about you, but I at the end of lockdown, as soon as I was contact in contact with other people, I realised that I was mad as a box of frogs. <laughs> I'd been alone in a cottage for the best part of a year and I thought I was doing terribly well. But then as soon as I got to the greengrocers and tried to speak, it was in Elvish. <laughs> uh, so when Daphne, my friend at Hazel Press said, look, you know, we'd be interested in something. And I started to write and it was in the last few weeks that I, it, I remained in the cottage that I'd been living in for five years something unusual happened. Just more personal stories started to turn up. And actually in that sort of secreted in stag cult, it's a bit of a love story to some of the women in my family. You know, it's my Auntie Metty, my Auntie Jenny, uh, some of the women that aren't alive anymore, but are very much real presences in my life. But rather than me saying, let me tell you about Auntie Jenny, she would show up in the story of Keridwen. So the myth world, and my personal story got all woven up in this wild little book. So this is since Keridwen appears in this yes. bit that I've asked you to read. You have. Let's, Would you like me to read it? Let's read it. Are you ready for a story? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not going to work like that. The story has got to come all the way from Snowdonia. Uh, so I'll have to, we need a bit more voice in the room. Are you ready for a story? Yes. That's it. That's good. Okay. I will read it. So this begins with a chap uh, called Gwynbach, and he is uh, talking about a couple of uh, people he knows. We knew of the two of them living up at Bala Lake, a witchy wife, Keridwin, and her vast husband. She was the power source in their relationship. There are those that will tell you she is a goddess. Others a woman with a few herbs and thyme on her hands. I will argue a third way, the blue feather in the magpie's tail. I think she was a bit of both. She had real proper knowing, not good or bad, black or white, but substantial magical knowledge. Some of us in the village, we knew a spell or two, the occasional curse mutter, but she had been at it, hammer and tongs since Noah's flood. She outranked everyone. We were scared of her, but in a way that was exciting, not eviscerating. You know what it's like when you're scared of someone in a good way? <laughs> Always good to know the difference. So Keridwen, the old woman, she had two kids. She had a boy and a girl. We all fancied the girl. How could you not? To not adore her was like not loving dusk or black beer or a chop. To not adore her was to not love life. We could see her way would be a bright path. She was about my age, but it's her brother that was the problem. Her brother was all kind of mangled up, a big old ugly mess. His name was Morfan. If she was light, he was night. And it wasn't a tantalizing darkness. It wasn't a rich, sexy darkness. It was going to be wretched and filled with pain for him. A blindness that no Homer could negotiate. So mother, as all mothers should, gets to work. It can be grand to have a mother that's a witch. 
She knew there wasn't much she could do with Morfan's exterior other than drag a comb through his hair, but his interior was different. She could make her son glow. She could light him up from the inside. She could bring inspiration to him. And if he was to have any luck at Arthur's camp, he'd need to be a sage, a wit, even a prophet, not a runty little crow. Ah, I said the magic name, didn't I? Arthur. Before Camelot, before swords in stones, before round tables, before he was even referred to as a king, just Arthur. But he was great, even then. The idea, it's the idea of Arthur, was what we as a people circled around. There was meat and mead just in uttering his name. Keridwen wanted Morfan in his orbit, under his wingspan, seeing things as he did. So Keridwen is now going to make the great potion of her life. Her son is going to go to the ball, effectively. It was a year and a day, the ancient terms, and a cauldron that was loaded up with all her herbs, her mutters, her bones. She would cook away until it finally spat three drops of the pure stuff, the real ticket, the weird, the big word, Arwen, into the mouth of her son. He was excited but excused from the labour of preparation, but me, as a young local lad with time on his hands, got roped into stir. A geriatric from the settlement, Morda, was to keep the kindling ticking over. Blind as blind is, so he was. So when Keridwen wiped his eye out, or swiped his eye out, it didn't make much difference, and I will get to that. Keridwen was not to be refused, so we cracked on. All year we grafted on the spell. The seasons got chucked into different chants, herbs sacrificing depending on the time of the year and the movement of the moon. Keridwen was relentless, barely taking a shift off, rarely kipping. For all that liquid in the cauldron, it was only, remember only this, three drops that was going to be any good. The rest would kill you straight up poison. So she had to get it right. It was mistressful watching her. And it's now, all these years later, that I realize what I learned from her education. My people and peoples like us, we make these pots, these cauldrons. On the outer rim of the pot are all sorts of shapes and symbols to be deciphered by outsiders. But on the inner rim of the pot, are other insignias, images that can only be deciphered by insiders. Hidden stuff. The difference being what you could call explicit and tacit. And it was the tacit stuff that was getting cooked, stewed and stretched down in the cauldron. I'd look down at Crouching Morder, he's the old guy at the bottom, as my stirring arm ached, I'd look into his milky, unseeing eyes and not knowing that Caridwen was teaching us how to become alchemists. She's teaching us how to become alchemists. Now, we were getting to the end of the stretch. We'd maybe lost tack of time. The fumes from the cauldron were overpowering, for once Caridwen wasn't towering over us, my knackered stirring arm was going round and round. She'd gone to sleep. 
I heard a sound from the cauldron I'd never heard before, like a stag at bay, a roar, and it all happened so fast. Three drops spurted from the bubbling onto my hand. You know what I did? I did what you would have done, what we all would have done. I stuck my thumb straight in my gob to cool it down. Just like dear Finn and the Salmon of Wisdom, just like all the Wonder Girls and the Wonder Boys of folk tales, it just happens that way. There wasn't malice, there wasn't even ambition. I didn't want to rob her son of his moment, it just bloody hurt. <laughs> this was the heavy, heavy dose his mum had cooked up. So I mentioned a word, Arwen. And to think in Arwen is not like normal thinking, and I'm not even sure it is thinking. I was flung into something I would never return from. There is a cord of light that bangs out from me to Keridwen, like echolocation, but I can see it. A fire trail in the whipping air, and I know she's awake and she's after me. She didn't work that hard, that fucking long, stretch herself half mad on magical austerities to see me gobble down the good stuff. I didn't hear her fury. I didn't see her fury. I felt her fury push into me like a boxer's blows. I ran for my life, and as I ran, I fell. I didn't change into the shape of a hair. I fell into the shape of a hair. I fell into that mad bucktooth magic between those gnashes that don't ever stop growing. The chewer, the fellow in the rain, the double backer, the stag of the brush, I fell into, I fell into hair. Now in your time, it was minutes, but in my new startling quadrant of dreaming, it was aeons. Now Keridwen, she became a cauldron and leathered after me, a slobber and proper garish in her rage. So into the soft dimension I leapt, into the greening river as a fish, again a falling, not a contortion. She became an otter, furious and vigilant, till I pushed my mind into wet feathers and erupted from the froth as a bird, she twisting from otter to hawk. I have to tell you again, so you are understanding this with me, these things took place over immeasurable time. I was in the future of wherever you are now, reading me. This took place in a place that hasn't happened yet. I finally fell into a grain of wheat, she now a black hen and she gobbled me up. Was I in the cauldron? Was I in her belly? Was the cauldron always her belly? Was the potion made of oestrogen and amniotic fluid? These things I cannot talk about, it'll cheapen the whole thing. But I was born again, like the Christians. This was my second birthday. I was a baby again, a baby brewed in the belly of a woman who wished to kill me. A woman who was there when she saw me but could not throttle me or slip in a blade to my folds. A woman who wrapped me in swaddling, placed me in a coracle and gave me to the fates and to the waters. Like Moses, like Dionysus, like dear Tristan. I am Taliesin. I am Shining Brow. And thousands of years on, there is still energy in my name. Thousands of years on, 
there is still energy in this story. Well, I rest my case. There is energy in that story, isn't there? And I'm fascinated by, um, I'm fascinated by how you manufacture the energy. And I love the fact that that the sort of it seems to me that this is a, the three drops. This collection is the three drops. It's it's sort yeah. of storytelling distilled down, right down. So it's not just. You know, you might say it's a short book, but it's very, it actually, I thought, oh, it won't take me very long to read, but it did take me long to read. And then I had to read it again because I wasn't sure that I'd quite unfurled it. Mm. Do you know those little, those little German loaves of bread that look very small and then you pick them up and they're like the weight of a brick? I think, I think it's a bit like that. Yeah. It's that kind of heavy rye bread. And everything that's in this book... Um, poured out. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to remember, Daphne, how, how it happened. But I remember writing to you, I'd send you an email and say, something more has happened, something is happening, something is happening. I'd send it to you, it would come back, it would Aikido the shape, it would move back and forth. But in there, just, it, just like it is in our, all our lives, there are moments where things just trip off the tongue, but they're very hard won. And I think the secret to storytelling, you know, in any medium is, is wear your erudition as lightly as possible. Uh, and that's what I was trying to do in that book, is to tell ancient stories as if we were sitting in the pub and I was saying, Claire, you're not going to believe what happened next. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to do, really. Mm. And the sec that section, it opens with um, Joseph Boyce yeah. curling himself into the shape of a hair. Yes. What, what does Joseph Boyce have to do then? <laughs> Do you know who Joseph Boyce is? Got an idea for Joseph Boyce? Joseph Boyce is a totemic, troublesome figure in my own life, really. And as a young art student of about 25 years ago, the idea that there'd been a Luftwaffe officer who'd been shot down created this sort of uh, strange mythology that his body was filled with shrapnel, which it was, rescued by the Tartars, wrapped in felt. And then I felt had become a kind of grief man for Germany after the unmentionable had happened, after the Second World War, he kind of crawls round modern art in a very ancient way. And Boyce has this lovely phrase, he says, in times like this, we need an enchanter, in times like this. So Boyce was my kind of enchantment. And so he naturally turns up. Um, I realise that in Stag Cult, because I think like most writers, by the time you've written it, you need to walk away from it. From a you don't look at it for a while, and if you're lucky, if you're lucky, the book will be so alive it won't be where you put it down. It'll be in another room in the house, and Stag Cult is definitely moves around the house. So every time I open it up, I'm sort of you know I'm surprised by what's in it. But Boyce just turned up as a totem figure and wouldn't go away. And there was more Boyce in it, and there's less Boyce in it now. But he was important to me. Funnily enough, though, that word enchantment that I used, I'm, I'm sort of the opposite of that. In, in my own work as an oral storyteller, people often say to me, what you're doing, I, I do like what it's, it's so enchanting. It's so enchanting. But actually, I feel that we live in trance states half the time anyway. I do. You know, the, my phone is a very mixed blessing. It's a very, very mixed blessing. Uh, so I'm always looking to wake up. And weird for me, my, mysterious mystical stories, I feel more alive and more clear.
Mm. He's not the only artist that you name check. Cy Tom Twombly yeah. is another one. Cy Twombly was in there. Uh, I have a long background. Some of you will know this. I'm a painter. Uh, and if things had gone better for me, no books would have been written and I'd still be bloody painting. But someone, someone I'm going to be discovered at some point, I'm sure of it. Um, yes, in many, many years ago, I spent a summer in Italy uh, at something called the British School in Rome. I was a young fledgling painter and I was really interested in this painter, Cy Twombly. If you don't know him, do go and have a look at his work. Twombly is especially interesting for me because I think he was great, even greater in, towards the end. And I love that. I love that when the maturity of a life, you remember Yeats, he says, old, old men should be explorers. Old women should be explorers. We should all be fucking explorers. We should go out. What's life without a quest? What's life without a quest? So Twombly was someone that pushed the edges of his imagination to the end. So he's in the book as well, and Ai Weiwei. And Ai Weiwei, a lovely line from Ai Weiwei. Tell Can me, I tell, tell that story? Tell the story of Ai Weiwei, that's a wonderful You know story. who Ai Weiwei is? Very strange thing. Uh, there was a video a few years ago of me being interviewed in North Carolina. It was a very hot day, I'm not good in the heat. But it was seen, bizarrely, by Ai Weiwei. And he sent news to his arts foundation. He said, I found who I want to write my next catalogue. And they said, well, who would it be? You know, and, uh, and he said, well, it's this guy. I think he's in a tent and he's in Devon and we'll find him. So out of nowhere, they say, it's a true story. Can you be in Berlin in three days? And I said, well, yes, of course I can. Of course, you know. So I go, I go to meet Ai Weiwei. And... Um, he, the project is all about myth as migration, which is something I'm really interested in. Like so many of us in the room, there's all these kind of umbilical cords crossing oceans, we're connected in all sorts of different ways. And that really was what we were talking about. But here's the thing, here's the magical thing. He said, I'm interested in you because you love myth. He said, my father in the late 50s was a famous Chinese poet, but not known at all in the West. And we were taken to an internment camp in Mongolia where all his books on mythology were burnt in front of me. And so there's a pile of books. And he says, I remember seeing the guard throw the Odyssey onto the fire. And he said, but those things were my father's great heart. And he then got sad. And he sat on the chair and he said, the great grief in my father's life was that he was never published in the West. He wasn't known in the West. And that was a source of so many things that gave him nourishment. And part of my work as an artist is holding up his side of the family name. So this is very moving to have this conversation. I have a book in my bag that I brought with me, apropos of nothing. It's called The White Pony. And it's an anthology of classical Chinese poetry that was very popular with people like Gary Snyder and the Beats in the late 50s. Bly, you know, got it for me. So I'm, I'm, it's an important book. And I said, oh, look, there's all these old poems in it. And as he's talking about his dad, I see that there's a section at the back called New Poets. And I'm like, oh, fuck. You know, you can just feel all the hairs going up. And we opened the back of the book up and he said, Daddy, Daddy. And there it was. 
there it was, there's two or three poems from his father and effusive praise written for him saying, you know, this is one of the great Chinese poets. This is a man who draws from Van Gogh, who draws from Bach, who draws from here, there and other. And, and I realized that actually in the way how magical life is, the whole point of me being there was, no, was not to write the catalog. It wasn't for my personal benefit. It was to give him the book. It was to give him the book, but I didn't know, and that's the sweetness. I didn't turn up like, <laughs> wait till I do this. It, it just happened. And so we all production in Ai Weiwei's enormous factory stopped for the day, and all, every, all the kids gathered around, the young, you know, young artists, and he just read his father's poems. And a lot of the poems, uh, you'll probably know this in Chinese poetry, is a lot of honoring of the moon. Uh, and just as I was leaving, and I was absolutely shell-shocked by what had happened, I can't tell you how significant it was, I'm just walking to the door, and he calls out, and he says, tell the West we want the moon back. Tell the West we want the moon back. The moon isn't to be walked upon. The moon is a woman. So that was me done in Berlin. Yeah, so that's one of the stories that's in the book, yeah. I'm going to take you back to what it was like to read as opposed to tell this story. This yes. is a, a distillation of lots of stories you've told before. Yeah. What, what was it like to read it out of the book? What, just then? Yes. Uh, kind of difficult because as you, uh, there, there's a few familiar faces here uh, and they will know that the way I actually tell, uh, it's very much about in wondering in public imagining in public and usually the conditions of a story mean I can't really rehearse it because as soon as I am kind of navigating my imagination in a pre-dawned pre way I'm not favored anymore by the gods of the stories they like don't come and what you get is bad acting <laughs> and that is something if there's any fledgling storytellers here Acting's wonderful, theatre is an amazing thing, but the real rub of, of oral storytelling is that tightrope where you go out and you, you don't quite know what's going to happen next. So actually doing it, it was fun, but really different to how I'd normally tell that tale. Mm. You've worked with Mark Rylance and with Paul Kingsnorth yep. and with other people who work in slightly different way. Yes. How does that work? Well, I love it. And, uh, you know, if anybody, I'm, I'm looking, uh, you know, I'm looking to experiment. You know, you, well, you've got to keep things interesting. So, um, yeah, I worked a few years ago, actually, I worked with Mark Rylance. We did it recently. Yeah, we did it Richard. I ended up at Laurence Olivier's house with his son, Richard Olivier, with Mark doing this kind of thing where I'll tell a story and he will play parts of the story. So he'll be a daughter or he'll be a, a wild, depraved king. Uh, but he's phenomenal, as you can imagine, with improvisation. So I'm, I'm very interested personally in work. I'd like to work a bit within theatre where we, were, we had actors around, but there was a kind of there was a little air in the room in terms of what's being said. I know there's something to do with oral storytelling in theatre that I'm, I'm meant to do, but it hasn't happened yet. And you're exploring ways of doing it with people. You only go to the best, obviously. Well, yes. Yeah, you know, you, you want to work with people that are, are brilliant. Uh, and I, here's a thought. I've been thinking this recently. I, I don't think I'm remotely intelligent, 
But when I'm around interesting people, I get smarter. <laughs> I get more imaginative. And I, I live in a place where good conversation could be quite hard to find rural Devon, you know, there's a, a lot of beautiful things, but conversation, I think there's a real argument that intelligence often lives between people and is sparked. So I'm looking for those sparks because I have all sorts of thoughts that I simply don't have when I'm alone at the desk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When when I was reading this, I I, I, I come from a, a line of, of fraternal twins and there are all sorts of funny things happen with twins. And I say, you must be a twin, but you're not a twin, but you have written a book about twins. I have, yeah, courting the wild twin. Yeah, yeah. No, I haven't. I don't think I've had a, a twin. Although, <laughs> oh, well, no, let's listen, think about this. There is an old idea that on, it's a fairy tale idea, that on the night you were born, you had a twin that you don't know about. And the midwife threw her or him or whoever they are out of the window. And that in actual fact, it is the business of growing into a human being, which takes a really long time, to find that twin that culture at large would rather you didn't know about. This is an old Greek idea, it's your daimon really. And I think I did grow up suspecting there was somebody wilder than me. There was somebody definitely having more fun than me. And I could hear it in music. At night, I'd hear my parents playing uh, Vaughan Williams from downstairs, Fantasia on a theme for Thomas Tallis, or Billie Holiday, or A Love Supreme by Joel Coltrane. And I was like, that's the, I can feel that there's, there's just something out there. It's this questing idea again. I've got to go out and find it. Mm. So uh, that book is full of, there's a, a Persian poet called Hafez, and he basically says this, the job, the job of us is to go around chucking keys into prison cells. Like whoever you know who feels lost, give them a key. And, and what I'm trying to do in my own work and in my life is gather as many keys, because people have been very generous with me, like the Wai Weiwei story, so you want to keep moving them on. Because within myth, the world will give you as much beauty as you can handle, providing you're prepared to, to pass it on. So don't hoard it. That's the key. Mm. So what you gave to me was the idea of Taliesin and Morphin being twins in a way, that the dark twin and yeah. the twisted twin and the twin who yeah. consumes. Yes. Here's an idea about exile twins. What you exile will grow hostile towards you. What you exile grows hostile towards you. So if that twin disappears off, when they meet you again, they won't high-five you. There'll be trouble. And this is, you know, every therapist understands this, is, you know, a decent embodied soulful life is going to involve you rummaging around in the dark and going, oh, I haven't seen you for a while. And they say, well, you didn't let me out of the cellar, you nutter. <laughs> um, and that courtship has to begin. Yeah. Tell us about Arwen. Well, Arwen is a, is a word. It's also a person. This is someone here is called Arwen. Um, it's an energy, really. Uh, it is absolutely blessed inspiration. It's very Welsh in its nature. Um, and it's, it's a kind of holy moment. Uh, my mum comes from uh, a particular sort of Christianity. It's called nonconformist. And they are not fans of uh, people in robes. 
So they believe in divine inspiration, but they don't, they don't like all the accoutrements that go with it. And when the Arwen falls, and you could, this could even be in like a, a Quaker house, the person like steps forward and announces this moment is on them, this, this, mo this prophetic idea or moment of inspiration. But then you sit down again and you regain your smaller shape. But the Arwen is, you know, I mean, Lorca would call it, Arwen and Duende aren't the same. They're not the same. Duende's, um, you know, it's that stuff. It's all sex and, well, you know, it's sex and death and flamenco and crows. It's, it's all that. Arwen is a bit more Hildegard von Bingen, you know. This. Uh, but it's a beautiful thing. And, um, yeah, in the, the cauldron, I'm sorry if some of you... Oh, yeah, we need to talk about yeah. the cauldron. We haven't The cauldron, Keridwen's cauldron has in it what, what Lady Charlotte Guest, at least, calls all knowledge of science and all knowledge of inspiration, both. But once the pot gets tipped, the two mixtures separate out, and ever since there's been a kind of ongoing pain between the artists and the scientists but the original bardic shape has all of it in the cauldron mm. so now you talk about peering into your bog cauldron yes and that's that is the the, the sort of place at which it starts yeah so you know who Seamus Heaney is Yes. Seamus Heaney, in the late 60s and early 70s, along with Ted Hughes, and I think everybody at the time, all the poets at the time, were very interested in the bodies that started to be found perfectly preserved in peat. And there's this wonderful book called The Bog People, which you must scuttle home tonight and find and read. And this is the thing. Whenever they found a perfectly preserved body in the peat, they designated that area a bog cauldron. And it was the middle of winter. I think I was in a power cut. I was sitting in the cottage with a candle. And I thought, well, I bet there's a bog cauldron in me. I bet there's a figure. Do you know like babushka dolls? And you open up one, and then there's another one, and then there's another one, and then there's another one. I realized that within me were young women and giants and salmon and hawks uh, and an old guy that never stops crying. You know, all, all of this is going on inside me. So I just worked into that idea, and I'd sleep on it, and that's gradually one, one bog cauldron, one acupuncture point in me after another keeps opening up. Mm. So you've sort of given yourself therapy, lifelong therapy, is one way yeah. of looking at it. Yeah, I, I think, I think, I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it, the word therapy? Because I've come round to thinking it's, the, it's a very sensible thing is to have a therapeutic, you know, what, what's, what are your options to not, to not do that? People, you know, people use the word self-help as if it's bad. I'm like, you mean... Which we might do self-reliance. This is me learning, learning to, to uh, the story. It's like looking, this book is like a cave painting and you're holding a torch up and you can just see bits of the wall and there's a, the movement of the deer or there's a stag or there's something like that. And I'm just trying to discern what I can see. And I know as a fact, if this is going on for me, it's surely going on for you. Uh, it'll be down there somewhere. Mm. Yeah. So it, so it does have a, for me, in the best, in the noblest sense of it, it does have a, a sense of the therapeutic about it. 
Mm. So now we talked. We mentioned right at the beginning um, that it was more autobiographical than most yes. people writing, and then yeah. it, it begins with an occulted birth. Yes. Yes. Which um, is that your head is facing a different way to your body. Yeah. Yeah. That is a metaphor. Just before we get too excited, I'd better clear that up before my mother will, my mother will ring up and say, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. What I mean by that is I grew up in the 1970s and I grew up facing Thatcher's Britain and I grew up facing Culture Club and whatever, you know, Spandau Ballet and something called GCSE. Some of you will know them. And uh, but I knew behind me, my body was shaped towards Connemara and all sorts of ancestral stuff and all these old stories and Robin Hood and, and, and Arthur and all of that. But like everybody, I was kind of contorted in these two different positions. And when I turned 50, which I did almost a year ago, I thought, fuck that. I want my whole body going in this particular direction. I mean, there just comes a point, doesn't there? You know, enough. Uh, but like everybody, I was so, so multifarious in influence. Uh, it's taken a, taken a long time to find what I stand for, you know, and, the, and I do feel that I'm very old fashioned. I was talking to an old Orthodox priest the other day and he said to me, he said, uh, he said, what you need, boy. He didn't say boy. He was nicer than he said. He said, you need to remember the words noblesse oblige. Noblesse oblige. He said, you, and he was talking about something that was going on in my life, have been dragged out of the shit and are dining with princes. And that means you've been given a phenomenal opportunity in your life. And it means if you are noble, act noble. So get on with it. Be decent, you know. So uh, somehow all of this stuff in there is a move towards trying to find out what in a time like this noblesse oblige could look like. Mm. That'll be the next book, maybe. So you mentioned um, you're, that you're an artist. Yeah. You didn't. You haven't mentioned talked about your musical career yet. <laughs> really? No, no. There's a reason. And the importance that. of Thin <laughs> Lizzy in your life. Oh my God, Thin Lizzy. <laughs> Then Lizzie. Yeah, when I was about, I mean, I, I, I grew up, okay, now we're way off track, but I have to tell no, you. No, it's in the book. When, I was, when I was eight, <laughs> I was telling you about this. When I was eight, I became something called a rude boy. Now, my mother said, you are very rude. And if ever there was a time, but can you imagine, I was an eight-year-old Devonian rural lad thinking he was a Jamaican yardie walking around the you know trying to save up something called a harrington jacket uh and so music was important to me it was originally that kind of uh that kind of world i was a little rude boy then i heard the kinks i heard a cassette and the king i just the kinks the kinks oh my god uh and then i heard thin lizzie uh and this the amazing phil linnett i mean phil linnett black irish Tell me the story of young Cucullin, his expression dark, his face was sullen, and how he fought and always won. You know, that stuff when you're 10 and all around you is, is, um, is you know, whatever was in the charts at the moment. It was like going from drinking water to Lagavulin, if you know what that is. Uh, so, yeah, there's a bit of love for Thin Lizzy in the book as well. And, you know, and, and of course, I talk about being a drummer. You did? I did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that was my rite of passage, the summer of 88. 
You know, I was on, I was playing the highways and byways of Europe, all the squats, punk rock, hard, something called hardcore that came out of, of punk, all of that stuff. Terrible tinnitus that I have to this day. So as I'm talking to you, there's the applause from the last gig forever. <laughs> that I have in my, in my ears, unfortunately. Uh, so yeah, there's the music. And in a, I have to say, I don't think this is in the book. I got a job in a, I got a job in a factory and with the first week's pay packet, I got 75 quid. I went down to the music shop and I bought LA Woman by the Doors, which I really loved and I loved the drumming. I am now in a band with two members, with me, and the drummer from The Doors, John Densmore. Yes, we've been, and, and if you do not believe me, which I quite understand, <laughs> Google, Google Martin Shaw, John Densmore, Hollywood, and you will find us playing in a nightclub called Kayak's Woodshed from about 10 years ago. So I send, I send that back to my little self working in the factory and go, keep going, kiddo, you know. We were talking downstairs about how we, um, Forget names, both of us oh, forget names. But your memory for story, your memory, you, you, and you know, you're all the time reciting from this huge reservoir of unforgotten things. Mm. How, how is that? How can those two things exist in you? It exists because I keep so much else out. I keep so much else out, you know. I, I don't live in a world. I'm very, I know that my energy is limited these days. It's not like it was when I was 30. So there's a lot I simply choose not to think about. In oral culture, we didn't have all these devices to catch everything. So we were finite. You know, a word in Hebrew it means an event. It's an event. And so I choose my events really carefully. And I also live a life where quite a lot of the time I'm consciously on my own because I have to have a kind of imaginative space around me to, to draw all of this stuff in. So that's how I do it. I'm just very selective. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Um, I think that it's time to open it out to questions. You all have different parts of, of the work that you want to ask questions about. You might even ask for another story. You might know what story you want to ask for. So who's going to be the person? Yes, we've got the first one. Thank you. Hi, it's an honour to see you speak tonight. I'm a huge admirer of Robert Blyme, and I know that you had a, a, an intense relationship with him. Yeah. Can you talk about his effect on you with your writing and your storytelling, please? I will, yeah. You're not called Harry, are you? I am. 
thought so. Um, <laughs> Robert Bly. So go on, tell us, how did you know? Oh, no, 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 that was, you know, that's enough information. The, yeah. the other Harry says hello. Um, yeah, Robert Bly, for anyone that doesn't know, recently went to his reward at about 96 years of age. Uh, he was a phenomenal firebrand uh, Norwegian-American poet, um, absolutely revolutionized poetry in America in the, especially in the 60s and the 70s. In the 80s, he wrote a book. Robert was leading a conference called the Great Mother Conference, very influenced by second wave feminism, very influenced by writers like Marie-Louise von Franz. How does myth talk about the feminine, the female, but also the feminine? So this whole conference was set up like this. And then a lot of the mums had kids and they had boys. And when the boys got to about 14, they said, look, our sons don't want to hear the Handus Maiden. Is, have you got anything else? And he went away and wrote a book called Iron John. Iron John sells two million copies. So this, this Norwegian Lutheran suddenly becomes very rich and very famous and the rest of it. And that was all that I knew. He lived over there. And then suddenly, about 16 years ago, when I was working four jobs and I was a young dad, I got a message from him that said this, come to America, I want to make a fuss of you. <laughs> Imagine, this is how weird that is. This is, as, this is so weird, it's like you are playing guitar in a Norfolk pub and someone from behind the bar says, I've got a text from Howling Wolf. <laughs> you know, he wants to see you. He's in the south side of Chicago, get your stuff. I swear to you, it was that monumental. Uh, I arrived in America, I got robbed at Newark Airport long story uh, and met and met in in an hour I met Robert Bly, James Hillman, Jane Hirschfield, um, uh, Colin Barks and it goes on and on and on and my life absolutely like that changed so Bly within three years um, Bly retired from that conference and to everybody's huge annoyance not everybody but a lot of people's annoyance I took over kind of curating it as a nut and I learnt by mistakes and I learnt Robert's dear friend is a woman that's also been important to me Joya Timpanelli and Joya Timpanelli who they call her the dean of American storytelling Joya always said you know a story from a long time ago has to earn its place in modernity and she said, whenever I tell you a story, like me as a young apprentice storyteller, think of it like um, a recipe that's been passed down in a family. And for a year, you cook it in the way auntie told you to cook it. And then one day, one evening, you've had a bit of wine, you discover smoked paprika, and you just add that little bit, but you don't mess with, with the majority of the thing. Uh, and that's how that robust approach is the influence that Robert had on me and his capacity to take a group down and to say the thing that everyone was frightened to say. He was very brave and to me, he was very kind. Uh, and I knew I was walking around with someone that, that shook mountains, you know, and that changes you. You're never the same when you've met someone that really 
has really lived in a particular type of way. I, I can't imagine him now. Like, I can't imagine him in 2022, but I miss him. What did you mean by take a group down? He, Robert, uh, and it's something that's a big part of the work that I do as well. Robert, to use an Irish quote, how can I be with you if I'm not sad? You know, Robert had a lot of heartbreak. His stepson was killed and he was killed in the middle of a conference. And Robert, for all his high spirits and his gaiety, had that Norwegian sorrow in him. And he learned bit by bit that actually most of us have to relearn how to be, how to grieve in public and to grieve together. And so we worked a lot with, say, returning veterans. We worked with people coming back from uh, all sorts of catastrophically difficult situations. So that's, that's the descent. And in, within myth, in Russian myth, that's called katabasis, the descent. Mm. You have this line about, about um, the emergence of the Renaissance, the Irish Renaissance out of the famine. Yes. Um, which is um, from the rupture of trauma, something that feels true. Yeah, there. yes. Well, I, I, I think so. And I've learned that as a, as, a, as a young storyteller. I was very neurotic about being, you know, as eloquent and as funny and as witty as possible. People don't care about that. People want to see you trying to tell the truth in public. That's what they want. And when you do that, you move from a transactional experience to a transformative experience. And that's what stories are. It's like deeper truths. The Mexicans call stories the river beneath the river. You've got the facts. We've got Ukraine. We've got Russia. We've got the pipes. We've got... And what is that understory? And, and that's something that you cannot get to without the myth world, I think. Mm. Thank you. It was a good answer, wasn't it? <laughs> Hello, man. Thank you very much. I have a question. You, when you began your reflections on this book, Stag Cult, about um, a message about the relational feminine coming through, particularly for you and in, in your family. And I might have misinterpreted that or I might have put my own lens on it, but I would love to hear more about that and I'd love to hear more about the impact and the importance of that for you personally and for um, your reflections on what is important for us at this time. So is, I'm sorry to, I, it's just because I'm not right here. Yeah, can the you women coming through. Yeah. So, um, I thought, I think I got it. I think, I think it's just been paraphrased. Yep. Uh, so yes, just to go back to something I mentioned, I realised as I went along in the book that the women in my family who, who were very and are, you know, eccentric, incorrigible, uh, brilliant, sometimes fantastically bad-tempered, uh, I'd just been around that my whole life. And, you know, the, rea the thing, I, I like women. I really like them. Uh, of all shapes, sizes, dispositions, it's, a, it's just a, it's a place I like to be and not in some creepy way, uh, you know, just quite genuine. And I realised, I thought, well, where did that come from? And I just thought it was because I was around my auntie Jenny and I was around my mum, I was around my sister, I was around, we were just around, and... and they just told stories. My dad tells stories too. My dad's a great storyteller. And I found when I started to write Stag Cult, and I'd 
Daphne is the, the publisher of Hazel, who I'm thrilled to be doing this with. I said, Daphne, there's a lot about my life coming out. She was like, keep it coming, sweetie. Keep it coming. So I was like, well, okay. Uh, and so these characters, like my auntie Metty, uh, are as important to me as Joseph Boyce, more so, but in a really different way. And to reiterate some, I know I've said this before, but it's all about taking the ground you stand upon seriously. Take your weird little family seriously. Entertain the horrific notion that the gods wanted you to be born into the family you're in and the circumstances that have come towards you. It doesn't mean that they're good or you can approve of them, you can rally against them, but that's what I'm trying to do with my books. Tom Waits has a great phrase. He says, a song needs an address. We need a postcode. You know, everything's so, everything is so universal and so global. I like specificity. So this book, what I'm trying to do is, is honour my ancestral dead, honour the, the, the strange lineage of these women in the family, uh, and especially my mum, who's still very much alive, um, and in just, just and, and prompt others to do something similar, I hope. Thank you, Martin. Uh, I have a question. You, you talked during COVID of, of sort of being a, a sort of an initiatory process and yeah. things just seem to be getting weirder. And yeah. I wonder what you might say around collective initiation or transformation and where are we? <laughs> Thank you. Recently, you know, I can only talk about these things in very small way. That's, otherwise, they're not very real to me. I had a group of a group of male friends. Male friends came round to see me. Guys in their fifties who I just love, and we've all had kids, and you know we're all kind of mad, and we're all sitting there. And I suddenly said, about one in the morning, I said, "Am I the only one who, post lockdown, feels I feel a bit lost? I feel a bit lost. It's not. There's different kinds of lostness." It's not as if it's unhelpful, but I'm not as sure on my feet as I was four years ago, and I'm probably the better for it, but I'm not the same. And to my astonishment, all the guys went, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know, I don't quite know where I am. And I've met very, in my line of work, some very significant spiritual teachers recently who've all said, what the fuck? <laughs> so the truth is, I think, you know, do you remember the worry was, in a way, with lockdown, the worry was that it would finish and it would all go back to normal and we'd forget. No, 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 we've, we've drunk some kind of metaphysical Kool-Aid. But I, what I can't do is offer any platitudes that it could possibly culturally uh, be a good or a bad thing. We don't really know yet. It's, in a way... I'll, I'll finish in a second with this. Think of, think of your house during lockdown as an alchemist's hut. And I think some people went through that experience most productively. Others got poisoned. You know, the fumes overtook them. The, the house blew up. So I have to take everything as a real like case-by-case -case basis. So the truth is, I don't know. Only that what I do know is that I'm I personally am not where I was before, but there's all, you know, uh, but I will conclude with, I recently was asked to write an article about living with uncertainty, which is kind of where we are. And my point as a myth person would be, 
Could we reframe that, change living with uncertainty to navigating the mysteries? Navigating the mysteries has a lot more dignity in it. You know, especially when you're, you're aging, you don't want to be just constantly living with uncertainty. You know, fuck off, fuck off. Uh, you, know, you, you know, Billy Connolly, or no, not Billy Connolly, I'm getting confused. Is Billy Connolly's wild twin is W.B. Yeats. And Yeats would say, you know, Yeats would say, sail to Byzantium. Sail to Byzantium. Rumi would say, build your boat like Noah. It makes no difference what your friends think of you. So I just hope there's something of that in all of this uncertainty, we choose to navigate mystery. Well, I think that that's the most brilliant place I think that does make a beautiful ending. Thank you so much, Martin. So Claire. nice to see your faces again. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, I appreciate that. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.